0: The negative externalities associated with pollution are one thing, but the negative externalities associated with unemployment, depression, the uncertainty associated with change being forced upon you by the authoritarian state that Sadiq Khan has imposed in London, these matter too. And Sadiq Khan, at every stage of the implementation of ULES, has exaggerated the impact of air pollution. He's exaggerated the impact of ULES on air pollution. And he's underplayed the consequences of this disastrous policy.
1: Hello and welcome to the IA YouTube channel. My name is Reem Ibrahim and I'm a Communications Officer and Linda Wetson Scholar here at the Institute of Economic Affairs. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by our research assistant here at the IEA, Daniel Freeman, and our energy analyst at the IEA, Andy Mayer. Silicon this week has announced the implementation of the ultra low emission zone. This effectively means that those that own cars that are not EULA's exempt have to pay an extra £12.50 surcharge. This zone is now being expanded across London's suburbs. It's been a particularly politically contentious topic as a result of the Uxbridge and South Rice by-election, and it was also used in those various campaigns locally. So, Daniel, you yourself have written in support of the ULES scheme. Mm. Can you tell me a little bit about why negative externalities should be taxed?
2: Well, I think in the case of uh, ULES, it's essentially a tax on dirty air. Um, It's a well-established fact that older, particularly diesel cars that were produced before 2015 uh, emit a lot of uh, emissions like um, small uh, particle matter and nitrogen oxide, which have uh, a demonstrably um, bad effect on people's health um, and can lead to chronic lung disease and premature death. I think as free marketeers, we broadly ought to support measures that seek to internalise externalities um, through imposing taxes rather than um, bans and ever more regulation. So I think this is a kind of step in the right direction.
1: So rather than banning those cars, they, yeah. they, those individuals have to then have an extra tax. So they're yeah. obviously punished through those kind of Pugavian taxes. Yeah. Andy, you hold a different perspective on this issue. What do you think?
0: Well, not entirely. So let's start where Daniel and I are probably going to agree. So he's laid out the groundwork on the economic theory of how you should deal with difficult environmental problems as a free marketeer. And generally, we agree that you should put a price on a pollutant if that pollutant has a particularly harmful effect and try and find market mechanisms for encouraging people to then reduce the activities that cause that pollution. Where Daniel is entirely wrong, and has completely misunderstood this issue, is that ULEZ is not that at all. ULEZ fundamentally is just a tax. And it's just a tax principally on some of the poorest and most vulnerable people in society, not the unemployed, but the people who are living on the edge and the margin of employment and unemployment, particularly those who use vehicles, who are the ones who could be paying up to £3,000 a year for this tax because they're in that horrible position that they need to use the vehicle for work, but they can't afford to replace the vehicle with something newer and less polluting. So the negative externalities associated with pollution are one thing, but the negative externalities associated with unemployment, depression, the uncertainty associated with change being forced upon you by the authoritarian state that Sadiq Khan has imposed in London. These matter too. And Sadiq Khan at every stage of the implementation of ULEZ, has exaggerated the impact of air pollution. He's exaggerated the impact of ULEZ on air pollution. And he's underplayed the consequences of this disastrous policy that is having political ramifications both for him, but also for the party that supported it, which was Labour, that's now looking a bit more ropey. And also in terms of the electoral fortunes of the Conservatives in London. So it's a misapplication of economic theory to a very bad policy and one that needs to be substantially rethought.
1: Okay, so we've both set out both of those sides of the arguments here. And I think that the evidence with this particular policy is interesting. So, Dan, can you tell me a little bit about what the evidence actually is with regard to you, Les? It's a tax on dirty air, as, as, as you mm. argued but will that actually result in in the consequences of those of, of dirty air being reduced or us you know seeing cleaner air in london what are mm. the consequences of this kind of policy yeah so there's been
2: a lot of uh discussion and controversy over the specific figures for how many premature deaths per per year mm-hmm. it's it's leading to and you know city can put, put out a figure of 4000 extra premature deaths a year this has been disputed Uh, to some degree, but the fundamental science behind it is not at all controversial. Um, Emissions from older cars do have serious health consequences. Um, And, okay, part of that is premature deaths, which is obviously bad for the people involved. Um, But um, there are also a lot of other more sort of limited uh, um, consequences. So. Um, people developing uh, bronchitis, um, asthma, various types of lung disease, which might not mean that they die directly as a result of pollution, but it can mean that they're going to take more time off work, they're going to see the doctor more, um, and all of these rack up, um, so that the the, the costs of this um, affect a huge number of people, essentially everyone in London, um, so you've got, you do have some research um, from, say, uh, King's College London did a study back in 2015 where they estimated that the overall economic cost of um, uh, small particle matter and nitrogen oxide in London from, from human sources amounts to about two and a half billion pounds a year, um, which is pretty substantial. Um, and, yeah, of course, ULES is not going to uh, eliminate all of this, but it is one measure that we can implement now, and are we implementing now, that will start to move these figures down.
1: Interesting. So do you think that that's sort of the summary of the evidence? In conclusion, you think that the ULES scheme will actually, the evidence sort of shows, ULES would reduce the amount of emissions in London, which of course would. Yeah, it, I,
2: I, I, don't, I don't think anyone really disputes that it will um, reduce these mm-hmm. emissions. Um, obviously, we need to wait for you know this scheme to have had, a, um, you know, the, the expansion to have been in place for for a while for us to see actually how much it cuts. Um, but I, I think there's not really any dispute that it will lead to a reduction.
1: Yeah, I mean, in that perspective, it's sort of consequentialist. Andy, do you want to tell me... Oh, what so,
0: so much wrong there. <laughs> OK, so let, let's, let's unpick this from basics. So the, the two main pollutants that we're talking about are nitrous oxide, NOx, mm. and particulate matter, either at the level of 10 micrometres or at 2.5 micrometres, with 2.5 being the more dangerous consideration and the first thing to note about both these things is yes they do have bad medical effects and those are measurable and those principally come about through the oxidating effects of those molecules and the way those molecules interact with other particles on the lungs so they can do damage and they can make conditions like asthma and bronchitis worse that's all true but if we go so the difference between medical fact and medical scenarios, we come to the problem with the 4,000 figure. So the 4,000 itself is extracted um, from a range of figures that came up with one for the UK in 2015 uh, from the Committee on the Medical Effects of uh, Air Pollution, and that came up with roughly about 40,000, and I think that was 29,000 associated with particulate matter, mostly 2.5, and 11,000 associated with NOx. That study in itself was based on a 2010 review of data uh, by a different body, and the 2010 review in itself was based on an American study from 2002 that was published in the American Medical Association um, based on data looking at American cities between 1982 and 1996. And that study came up with the rough assumption that the increase in mortality effect of air pollution was about 4 to 8%, which was averaged to 6% to give a simpler number. So it's a range, not a single number to start with. And it's not actually 4,000 deaths. It's modelled on the effect of lost life years, Yeah,
2: 70,000 life-years lost.
0: uh, 340,000 was the summary from just the 29,000, so about um, 500,000 across the entire UK population was the figure uh, used, um, which amounts to about three days, four days per person. And clearly it would not be three or four days per person because it would be concentrated on those most vulnerable, those with pre-existing comorbidities and lung conditions.
1: Like asthma,
0: for example. For example, or a predisposition like I have to getting that, I'm allergic to pretty much everything. So I spend most of the year fearing (laughs) natural environment particulates in the form of pollen. And that does have an effect on my health, which I manage through um, antihistamines. But the point is that when you say something scary, like 4,000 dead a year from air pollution, you're doing it for political effect. And if the reality is that we're implementing this extremely expensive tax on the basis that we're trying to extend lives that are already now measured at about an average of 80 per year, sorry, 80 years over the course of a lifetime, um, by three days, it doesn't sound quite so impressive or worth doing that. And it's not even that. So we go back to your other point, bringing in a tax like you, Les, will not eliminate 4,000. And Sadiq Khan won't say how many deaths it will eliminate. And where there has been thinking on this, in his own report, which was about 200 pages, I believe the figure that Daily Mail used was that you would reduce the number of deaths from lung cancer in London from 955 to 954 per year, which strikes me as a very poor justification for a scheme costing hundreds of millions of pounds and destroying the lives of poor working people.
1: So I guess the economic cost of this particular policy is uh, is interesting, but just just f- uh, focusing on the the evidence around whether or not it will actually clean up air, and also whether or not it will you know add those additional days to people's lives. Do you think that the evidence is is there for,
2: for what, this kind Well, of I, I think the issue with the. Uh, Anti-ULES people is they kind of want to have their cake and eat it on this point is that they they go on about how this is a devastating tax that is going to you know destroy hundreds of thousands of people's lives and livelihoods, but also it's not actually going to reduce um, uh, emissions that that much. It, it 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 seems like you kind of want to um, be of the position that. Oh yeah, it's going to have a massive impact on people, and it's going to dramatically change their behaviour, you, leading them to shift away from the most polluting vehicles. But um, it's uh, it's also not going to lead to less emissions.
0: Well, that isn't a contradiction. I mean, very few people who are on the average salary in London or the country more widely can afford to just find three thousand pounds a year more in their pocket particularly not during a cost of living crisis with inflation running around 10%. And that's mostly impacting the basic
1: goods. And there's also I mean, the economic um, impact of having to scrap your car if you are to do that. You spoke earlier about the, the, you know, the types of individuals that um, are sort of on the cusp of unemployment, potentially they are self-employed, those that are car-bound, those that are using their cars for work. You know, often they cannot afford to take off an extra day or two to scrap the car and buy a new one. And there's also the cost of you know what the subsidies that the government are going to be implementing um, to also pay for those. And in the main, they wouldn't be
0: able to buy a new car. New cars are exceptionally expensive, and electric yeah. new cars are even more expensive. What they would be buying is another second-hand car that was just on the other side of the line of the diesel or the petrol standards, and that car then would be hit when the ULES standards were inevitably increased, mm-hmm. as they will be in 2025 when Euro Seven comes in across both petrol and diesel engines. So it's a temporary reprieve, and that scheme in itself, that it needs a scrappage scheme on top of it in order to try and address this uh, systematic unfairness issue, suggests that it's not going to raise the money they thought it would, and instead it's going to create largely um, additional jobs and welfare in the used car market, which doesn't strike me as a market that needs government aid.
1: I think that's a particularly interesting point. Do you want to come back on to that point about
0: the, yeah. the particular economic cost of this issue? Yeah, well, I,
2: I would say that we should be careful as free marketeers to sort of start from uh, this position that because co- the costs of the policy are concentrated onto certain people, we should, and the benefits are distributed widely, we should be opposed to this. Like, you could say that the, I'm sure there are plenty of hard-working enterprising builders. Um, who but, but would, sorry,
0: Daniel, that, that's not my point. My point is the benefits distributed widely are negligible. We're talking, as I said, about three days extra life per year, possibly, but not, but not even is, that, because it doesn't have that impact. Th-
2: this is three days of life per year, each year.
0: No, each additional that's across year. your entire life.
2: That's... That wasn't my reading of the paper, but um, maybe, maybe I misunderstood it. But regardless, you still have significant health impacts, um, which cost um, the health service significant amounts of money. Um, it leads to a reduction in productivity from people taking days off, mm-hmm. um, which according to you know, um, King's College London, this is costing the London economy about two and a half billion pounds a year. Um, so even, even if ULES leads to a reduction uh, of, say, 5%, that's still a pretty substantial you know, amount, of, amount of
0: money. Well, that, there point. we go to the current controversy about ULES, which is that the mayor's own sources for evidence have been distorted in terms of that kind of impact i mean it's, uh, cer- it's, it's certainly it's certainly, it's, it's the, certainly uh, true it's a cer- real
2: study rather than king's college sure which is
1: independent
0: and sure
2: had no connection to see deep con you still met uh, mp for tooting
1: wasn't day, a controversy around the city's funding but the
0: con- the, the controversy is the pacific additional impact that ules has on reducing air pollution Most of the reductions in NOx and particulate matter have already happened. There's been a massive collapse in those kind of emissions since the 1970s. I think about 90% of the collapse on NOx has been even since the 1990s, and that's got nothing to do with ULES. That's just rising standards and improving technology, which fundamentally are what drive lower pollution vehicles and lower pollution generally. transport pollution in itself, I think, is something like 12 to 15% of the overall total of both of these pollutants in the country, most of the additional comes from heavy industry, um, comes from wood burning stoves in homes. That,
2: that, that's in the country as a whole, not, in, not in London, which where is an ur- a urban sim- area. I agree. Yeah, a significantly greater yeah. proportion sure. comes
1: from transport. So, if your solution then, you know, sort of thinking about the the way that we want to potentially tax negative externalities, and that's effectively mm. your argument. If we don't do that, what what would the solution then be to increasing dirty
0: air. So where I think Daniel does have a point about those like schemes mm-hmm. is currently we are raising about £50 billion a year for environmental taxes and those are figures from the Office of Budget Responsibility. And that's not comprehensive, it doesn't include things like the North Sea in transport. So 75% energy taxes, 22% taxes on transport. And that mix is clearly wrong. That 3% on top is the pollution taxes, which is where ULEs would fit in. And if the impact of pollutants is more severe than the impact of carbon dioxide on the atmosphere, for example, in terms of the overall effect, which is what you try to calculate when you're trying to work out what the level of tax should be to deal with an externality, then more should be shifted onto pollution taxes, but then it has to be shifted away From these other taxes such that you're not overtaxing environmental harms and undertaxing other things. So one thing you could do to make EULAs more acceptable would be to reduce fuel duty Mm -hmm. because it's already the case that we are overtaxing drivers through fuel duty. Fuel duty in itself I think it's something like 28 to 30 billion pounds a year Mm. of revenue more than accounts for all the spending that one would need to do in order to address Nicholas Stern's figure uh, of 1% to 2% of GDP needs to be spent every year in order to tackle the effects of climate change. That's just one environmental problem. So if you're going down to the root of other things, then you need to ensure that the carbon tax is not too high and the pollutant taxes are only tackling the externality effects of those pollutants, which is hard to do, but to address some of these fairness questions.
1: I think that's particularly interesting the alternative policies.
2: What, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm wondering what your take would be on broadly because I, I agree we're going to have to transition away from uh, relying so much on, on fuel duty, not least because more and more people are not driving petrol or diesel cars. So, you know, there's going to be about... So a, less taxis... Yeah, to, to yeah you've, you. You, you've got a sort of 30 billion, as Andy say, you've got about a 30 billion pound gap that you're, you're going to have to deal with. And my view is broadly we are going to have to move to a comprehensive system of road pricing. Um, and what would be your view of a general shift in that direction and you as sort of being, being part of that shift as, you know, you can use the network of cameras to enforce a road, um, a road pricing system in future?
0: It's, it's a really interesting question. I mean, on, on the general economic principle, um, most free marketeers agree that road pricing is a superior solution in the long term. I think there is a subset of libertarian thinking that worries, and worries reasonably, about the impacts on privacy. Do you trust the government with knowing where you are at all times when you are in a vehicle? Uh, who gets to control that data? What happens to it? How can it be used? Is it simply there to fairly charge you for an externality? Or is it going to be used for a host of other things? Because with the best will in the world, the civil service will go for it, <coughs> the police will go for it, the secret service will want to use it. So there are reasonable objections to road pricing. I don't think the cameras are the solution and I personally would not let local authorities set their own Pigouvian taxes because you get this consistent problem of dual, triple taxation all targeting the same group of people, all targeting drivers. Um, but if you had a national scheme of transition that moved the country from fuel duty to row pricing, uh, the Treasury has already looked at that and they say that it should be broadly revenue neutral. I disagree. I think it should be based on what the actual environmental harm is. And that would mean lowering it overall at the moment because those environmental taxes are already very high.
1: Could you actually just define what road pricing it is, just for those? So, are-
2: so this is a system where people are. Well, there are there are various different models, but um, this is a system where people are charged for uh, either either the number of miles that they they drive. That's that's one option, or based on um, what. Um, which roads they're using mm-hmm. at which time. So you might be able to say, charge more for certain roads in, in Russia mm-hmm. um, and charge less at quiet times, charge more in, in the centre of London than you would in um, uh, in you know rural Shropshire. Um, um, and in in some ways the congestion charge is kind of a very basic step in that it's, direction.
0: It's, I mean a good analogy to the different the difference between proper road pricing and the congestion charge ULES mm-hmm. type schemes is one between smart meters as implemented by the government and what they should have done. So smart meters as implemented through regulation mm-hmm. have stuck these physical meters into every home rather like we've stuck cameras around London. And that does sort of work. Um, it's quite administrative and expensive. But what they should have done is waited until mobile technology um, had got to the level it is at now and simply put a SIM card in every meter. And the road pricing scheme that will actually work and the one that they will probably introduce eventually is a SIM card in every car or some other electronic device that allows you to monitor where the car is at any time. And there are wrinkles to that. What do you do about cars coming on the ferries, coming across mm-hmm. the channel? Well, I guess we don't need yet another debate about things, <laughs> the the things on the channel. <laughs>
1: um, but
0: again, you could have put a smart device in a visiting car. Mm. So it's, it's not that hard with modern technology to do road pricing. The wrinkle is in how you do it, so you have variable pricing, how transparent is that mm-hmm. pricing, uh, how do you deal with distributional impacts and all these other things. But it's perfectly possible. And
1: I guess with these sort of, um, I guess, fear of big brother and the cameras on the, on the, on the roads, they, that kind of solution would, would, would sort of absolve that problem. Well, no, it wouldn't solve it. You'd
0: have to have regulation to prevent Mm-hmm. the government accessing the data for other purposes.
1: So that, so that would be particularly interesting if the government weren't able to access that information. Although I suspect they would probably try to anyway. Uh, they certainly um, would. I mean, yeah, yeah. I might,
0: yeah we, we, we all know yeah, what would I, happen.
1: I, <laughs> we all know what would happen if the government had access to that like, kind of information. Yeah, an-
2: another suggestion I have seen on, on road pricing to account for the kind of uh, privacy concerns is that you could have an option where every time you did an MOT, your... Um, uh, the number of miles mm-hmm. you, you had um, you know, travelled would be paid at would be which, paid which at is
0: very very crude Paid. Yeah. A, yeah. because if you're, go, if you're going yeah. down the road pricing route you want to eliminate yeah. the yeah. congestion it, it, it's charge, it's you want well, to eliminate the ULES cameras yeah. the pollution charge on your car would be based on its age and the standard applied to its engine and other factors because clearly the current debate in pollution is that we've managed to get a tailpipe emission pollutants down by about 90% But they've remained static in terms of other particularly particulate pollution coming off things like the brakes, the tyres and the clutch. And that is the next area for the standards to try and tackle. Um, And it's something that's going to be an increasing problem with electric vehicles because they're heavier and that type of of pollution is a lot higher when you are dealing with a heavier car versus a lighter ice car.
2: Mm I'm sorry, just coming back to something you said earlier. I was interested mm. in your idea that um, it uh, introducing uh, a road pricing scheme ought not to be revenue neutral. You ought to, you know,
0: save... Yeah. Go, uh, government save, save not to fair money, Daniel. Yeah. Come on. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah I'm, not, I'm, I'm not arguing with that. My issue is, and frankly part of the reason I'm... I'm quite keen on you, Les, is that it seems to me that roads are systematically underpriced in London. Mm -hmm. Um, You can see that by just how much time the average London commuter spends in traffic jams, Mm -hmm. which is uh, significantly higher than uh, road users in Paris. It's higher than road users in Berlin. It's higher even than road users in New York. So, which me that this is uh, an issue where people are um, overusing this resource that we have, as in our roads.
1: The the, the particularly interesting point there, I guess, would then be, um, I mean, how would you measure... The, the kind of pricing for those particular roads depending on what, how, how much those people are using those roads yeah so how, how well, do you well the, measure the, it? the issue is
2: that every every hour that someone spends in a traffic jam mm-hmm. is you know uh, a a very significant loss to human well-being on a personal level yeah. but it, it's also uh, reducing productivity
0: so the future of cars is one where increasingly the driver makes fewer decisions. Uh, Self-drive cars are already possible and the AI is only going to get better. And the AI in your vehicle in the future in a world of road pricing would direct you to the routes where you would spend less. And you might want to set it so that you spend more to get to places faster, Um, that's your choice. Um, But it is perfectly possible to incorporate all of these different type of taxes into one system. Which ultimately is going to be more convenient for people and more popular than these rather scary camera-based systems.
1: I guess that, I mean the difference between uh, this particular road pricing system and, and ULES is that ULES is only applicable to cars that are that are sort of not, uh, not petrol mm. diesel. So this road pricing would apply to every driver.
2: Yeah, U-ult- ultimately it would have to, in in large part, because it seems. Uh, drivers are moving more and more towards uh, electric vehicles, mm-hmm. and so the whole the whole system um, of funding both the construction of new roads, maintenance of new roads, and on top of this quite a bit of extra money for the, the Treasury is coming from um, fuel duty, um, which w- will be much but, less I mean, what, in the future.
0: I mean, one of the reasonable grievances that drivers should have is that the money the government raises from fuel duty already massively covers the road-building programme. Uh, yes. And Eulers is a particularly egregious example of using drivers to pay for public transport while doing nothing to improve the roads. And I just want to, go, just want to be clear on this point, because where this came from originally was Sadiq Khan's promise to freeze the fares in London in his first election campaign. And that had a predictable impact on the income of TfL, which was then went off a cliff during the pandemic and has not fully recovered. And
1: they bankrupted about three times and they had to have yeah. the so national they, government bail them out. Had, they, had to, they had
0: to have the national government bail them out and new sources of revenue was one of the conditions of that bailout. And that is where ULS has come from. It wasn't brought in to save the lives of children. It was brought in to bail out a politician making a dishonest promise he couldn't keep.
1: Mm. I think it's particularly interesting in terms of, I guess, the politics behind ULEZ. Just the difference between the road pricing scheme that you, know, you both sort of argued for effectively and ULEZ is that, you know, ULEZ is, as you've argued, a, t- a tax on dirty Yes, yeah, so it's um, looking at those consequences of, 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 of that kind of emission. A road, how would a road pricing scheme also sort of fix those negative externalities?
2: Well, you could, uh, you could vary the price that you had to pay um but both based on um you know the the type of road you're using and at what time you're using it um but you could also vary it based on uh the model of car you're mm-hmm. using so if you if you want to drive um a, a really old really inefficient uh car that emits loads of um uh nos or whatever um you can do that you just have to pay more for mm-hmm. it okay. Um, and that's.
0: Well, a vintage car, you don't have to pay. I mean, there's, I think, yeah. a hilarious article about a tank. You,
1: say, yeah. you can drive yeah, a tank around
0: uh, it, uh, if outside if the house of Parliament without paying you less. You less. If, yeah.
1: if, if it's over
2: 40, 40 years old, uh-huh. yeah, you can, you you can get an exemption. Yeah, but my my issue is, I think that. I do not think Ulez is perfect. I don't think Sadiq Khan is a particularly good or even very honest politician, you'll be amazed to hear. And <laughs> yeah, I, I think some of the evidence that has been used has been overblown. But I think the fundamental issue that we have is that there are economic and health impacts from, um, uh, from pollution, especially in London. Um, and also just uh, roads are, in London are overused and undertaxed, and I think if one of the ways to get fewer cars on the road and more efficient journeys is to basically hammer the most, oldest, most polluting vehicles, I'm okay with that.
1: Andy, I'll
0: give you the last word on this. Well, the best way of getting rid of older and polluting vehicles is to let the market work. The replacement rate in the fleet of about 40 million vehicles in the UK is about 45% a year. These older vehicles are going anyway. And they're going to go at a pace that means uh, if we just left things alone, that the problem would solve itself. And by imposing these schemes, you actually create a Cuba-like backlash where you'll end up with more of these older 40-year-old vehicles on the road to avoid the scheme. So it's a foolish proposition from that perspective. On the health question, I think the health impacts of destroying people's lives are unambiguously worse than the trivial benefits of making a marginal difference to pollutants that are falling anyway, and in the most cases are already at safe levels. We'd be better off looking at the ways in which technology can help improve, deliver those last mile benefits, particularly on the non-tailpipe emissions. And finally, if we are going to go down this route, it should be something that is looked at nationally not locally, because you can't trust local politicians to do things like this. They always use it to raise revenue. They don't do it for health reasons, and then they do, they're not honest about it, which devalues public life for everybody.
1: Well, thank you both for this fantastic debate. Let us know what you think in the comments below. Is EULES an effective scheme? Is it going to work? Do you agree with Daniel, or do you agree with Andy? Until next time, thank you very much.